Hello, I'm Bryn Lucas and welcome to another episode of It's All About Me. And my special guest this week is a striker that used to play for Bolton and the Crazy Gang. It's Dean Holdsworth. Dean Holdsworth, thank you very much for being a part of the podcast. You're more than welcome, more than welcome. Now you've got, I think, an unusual story. People know you from the Premier League, the Crazy Gang, from Bolton... But it all started at Watford for you and your twin brother. But before all that, what was life like for you? Before all that was, um, as a youngster, I would say we went through quite a, a tough time in, in terms of family. My mum and dad separated when we were quite young. And in those days, it was quite often that the mum or the lady um, would separate and then leave the premises. And we found ourselves in sheltered accommodation, unfortunately. And it was tough for my mum. She she worked extremely hard to look after us. She did a number of jobs. I spent a lot of time living with my nan and granddad who were in West Ham. And it was a tough time in terms of unsettling. We, we shared a house once with two other families, shared a bathroom and a kitchen with them. So those sort of memories aren't that great in terms of fun. But when we actually got moved to a place called Broadmead Estate in Woodford Green. We, we found ourselves on the 12th floor uh, with a, a lift that hardly worked and a, quite a tough estate at the time, but it was close to where we went to school. And, you know, my mum did exactly what, what other mums would or should do and um, looked after us. And we started training then at about around 11 to 12. We were always in the football team and the cricket team at that time. It was almost the same teams. Most of the 11 kids always played the same sport. We got picked up by Watford playing for the county for Essex uh, one night by a guy called Ken Brooks at Watford. And he asked us to go over there and train at Stanmore, where the training ground was. And um, we went on from there, really. We left early from school, pre-apprenticeships, before they got fizzled out into YTS, and then moved into Diggs. So, you know, moving away, moving from home, you know, in an exciting challenge, we were offered apprentices by Graham Taylor. And um, we went on and, you know, went on from there. What sort of age was that then? 15. We left at 15. The school let us leave as long as we went back for our exams. Yeah, we went back and did what we had to do. And um, But our eyes were both, you know, firmly on a professional contract. Was football something you always loved watching and playing? Yeah, my nan and granddad lived at West Ham Memorial Ground, um, a route over the back of the garden, if you like, and there would be jumpers for goalposts. And we would play football with the local lads there until it got dark. And probably, you know, when it was dark, really, until my nan would call us in for dinner. We were focused on football and we loved it. My granddad would take us to West Ham, my cousin, Shirley, would take us. They lived in off of Green Street at West Ham, so we were taken to West Ham when we when we could go. And it was what you did when you grew up. You didn't have the the arcade games, the machines at home, so you wanted to get out in the open air and play football. Your granddad, he was obviously a big football fan. He was a West Ham fan, was he? He was, yeah, yeah he was, yeah, bless him. And uh, <laughs> he would take us to the games, and we would have a scarf. You know, I remember probably having fifteen scarves wrapped around me at one game. You know, around my arms, around my legs, you know, around my head. Um, and you'd walk down Green Street and he'd treat you to a pack of peanuts, dry roasted peanuts, and that was your day out. You know, it was a great day out. And um, I stood in the North Bank with him. And when my cousin Shirley took us, we'd go in the South Bank, or the Chicken Run, as it used to be called. So, yeah, that was fond memories, you know, being at, uh, at West Ham. Yeah, you have 
you have a love of it, really. You still you still look back with fondness. It was great, a great time. It's still there. I've seen the house. I went down a little while ago and I've seen the house. So you've played for a number of clubs in your career and you know, you've been around the game for a long time, but who do you support? Whose result do you look for first come a Saturday afternoon? I have played more games for West Ham in my in my mind than many other people have actually done because um I would go to bed, you know, dreaming of playing for West Ham. And uh, I always said, if I ever got cut, it would be Claret and Blue Blood, you know? Oh, really? I didn't so know I'm that. I'm a big fan, big fan of West Ham. I assumed you'd be a Watford fan or, or something like that, just no, because that's where it all started. I, no, West Ham were, you know, literally my everything. And my bedroom was, you know, the sheets for West Ham colours, you know, everything. Billy Bonds and Trevor Brookin, um, I actually still got it. I've still got a one-pound note signed by Trevor Brookin and Billy Bonds, which my mum got us when we were young. And when I meet Trevor Brookin now on his golf days, which I get invited to, he still doesn't really know that he's a big hero of mine. I've got a few of those. And uh, you're playing in Trevor Brookin's classic golf day and I'm sort of like there as a privilege, you know. You mentioned your mum. You're very close to her. Yes. Yeah, definitely. You know, she's a big part in myself and David growing up you know she was the one who would take us to games Saturday Friday training Sunday match you know taxied us everywhere so we could play you know so we owe we owe a lot to my mum for that first period of our life where you know it would have been very tough for her to hold all those jobs down and still look after her children yeah absolutely did you ever see your dad during that time no no never saw my dad till I was 23 again and never played a part in our lives which is a real shame and a real you know sadness really that he uh, he missed out on so much uh, mm. for myself my brother and my sister but people's um dna is what they have and uh, you know we looked after ourselves and it was a tough time when you haven't got a father figure you, you want it and you crave it a little bit but if it's not there you become your own father you actually have to make your own decisions and become quite stronger for it you know yeah yeah i'm with you your sister then is she older or is she younger than you? A few years younger. <laughs> delicately put, delicately put. <laughs> so she's a few years younger. My family, they split up when I was um, when I was a baby, so it was before I can remember. But, yeah. you know, I grew up in white middle-class farmer, you know. It's not like <laughs> it's not like having to learn how to fight to keep survival, you know. It wasn't that tough. But when families split up, there's normally an older and a younger mm. brother mm. or sister or whatever, and, and, and the older is the one that the younger turns to. You and your brother, because you're twins, that you didn't have the older one to lean on, but no. you had your younger sister. So who out of you three assumed the, the kind of the dad role? Early on, I think David is 40 minutes older than me, so he's, an older, he's older than me, so I always say that. He was the one who was a little bit more serious as a youngster than I was growing up, if you like. And we're, we're probably very similar still now. I think playing for the teams I've played for in the world I've been in, I've always enjoyed having the banter and the, you know, the, the, the fun stuff where David was always a little bit more serious. Um, it probably reflected on the clubs he was at where they were, you know, you can play for Wimbledon, you've got to have a sense of humour and, um, you know, you've got to maintain that. And yeah, it was just a little bit more of a father figure. I think David was. Mm. Mm. It's lucky you had someone or good that you had someone that you could lean on, especially during those early tough years. We went from school at three o'clock we got on a bus to, to Gantz Hill. We worked for a solicitor's firm doing filing for two hours. Then we'd go straight to training, go training for two hours. And on the way back, we'd grab our dinner and then run up 12 flights of stairs uh, because the lift weren't working, which was <laughs> training in itself, you know. Yeah. So 
you know, we just took it as that was what it was and that was the norm. You know, it was just what you dealt with. Kids are resilient though, aren't they? If you sort of make them get on with it, they will just get on with it. You know, my mum used to make our trousers when we were younger and things like that, you know, and you aspire, you try to be part of the group of other people and things like that. And you know your mum's working three jobs a day and doing different things to help you. That You just aspire that if something comes along and you can go and do some work, you should go and do it, shouldn't you? You roll your sleeves up and, uh, and get on with it, you know? So it sounds like it was unbelievably modest. What were Christmases like and birthdays? Yeah, great. My nan and granddad, my cousins, they were in West Ham, so we'd all get together and probably nick the Dubonnet off the tree, you know, the little milk bottles, <laughs> the cherry brandy, as you like, you know, uh, those sort of memories. Those are what I can remember of the Christmases. But yeah, everyone mucked in and got on with it, you know? So what was your schooling like? You say your education got disrupted somewhat because of football getting in the way, but were you a model student or were you a bit of a tearaway? We obviously didn't smoke or anything like that, so we just did what we were told sort of thing. We we just went to school and kept to the rules, you know? I, I never used to work out why people wanted to bunk off because you have to go back to school to do the next lesson. So I don't know what you did in an hour. I'd be bored out of my head. <laughs> we wanted to play football. We wanted to be in a cricket team. We wanted to be in a rugby team. We pay for the school, then we pay for the district, then you pay for your county. And county was Essex County at that time were a very good side. We had Warren Bart on him with us as well. So we had a good team. When we got a chance to leave early, we went to the headmaster who gave us his blessing to leave early to go and join Watford to go and live in his dig. So it was, you know, a real bonus then. Your brother is a defender, isn't he? And you're a striker. Yeah, so did you ever actually right. have to play against each other? <laughs> <laughs> so I've played against David three or four times. The one which is a real bone of contention for David, and it's funny because you know we'll have a laugh about it. I scored two against him. He was playing for Sheffield United, and um, we beat them two one up at Bramall Lane, and I scored both goals. And um, he never really wanted to speak to me for a little while after that. Um, I scored against Birmingham in the last minute for Bolton. He was playing for Birmingham, and I also scored another one which was. A header. Um, so I've had a little bit of success against, not against David, it's against his teams who we're playing against because if I got near him, he'd want to kick me anyway. <laughs> we used to be um, pulled apart sometimes in training because we'd really, you know, end up kicking each other and it become such a rivalry that, you know, it wasn't always too uh, too nice to each other, you know. You can get away with it when it's your brother, though, can't you? Yeah, we did. <laughs> we Unless you're did. a Gallagher brother, I suppose. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, then, yeah we wasn't in the line back then, yeah. It was funny, we used to travel home on a train sometimes and we were absolutely knackered from two training sessions and helping out with the kit. And where we lived, we had to get off at uh, Woodford Green on the central line and it went to Epping, which is another seven or eight stops. And one of us would always be asleep by the time we got to Woodford and the other one would get off the train and leave you on the train so you get to Epping and get told by the conductor that you, you know, end of the line sort of thing. And he'd walk in about an hour later, you know, not very happy with each other. <laughs> silly, stupid things we used to do. Yeah, that no, sounds like fun. Watford Youth came calling. So you played for Watford Youth and then you got called yeah. up to the first team. Obviously, you'll remember your first game, but if you could take us back to it, what can you remember of that day? I think my first actual game was maybe at Oldham away. I was a sub and came on and scored. It was freezing. It was on a plastic pitch and it was wet and and cold. But I'd been out for a year. I had my knee rebuilt. When I was 17, I had my cruciate, my lateral, my medial and my meniscus in my right knee. And I'd been out for a year. I'd then 
come back from that, which at that time, when I was 17, was a long time ago. And you know, I was so delighted that I was getting back and training and so hard, so, so, so hard to get myself back to a fitness level. Mm. And to finally get my debut um, was amazing for Watford, who I'd wanted, a, you know, the days of going up and down the terraces with people on your back and things like that all sort of repaid itself with that effort. Playing, you know, making your debut for Watford and walking down the tunnel was fantastic. And David had been in the first team. David was absolutely flying. He was commanding his position where I had Lou Felicity at a club uh, who I trained with for, for a long time when he had a kneecap problem. We had Ewan Roberts, we had Malcolm Allen, Trevor Senior was there, Paul Wilkinson. So we had some really good recognised strikers, you know. And I ended up actually going out on loan to three or four places because I needed to play football and I, and I didn't want to wait around. I thought I was good enough, to be fair, at that time. And you know, I went out on loan and did well. And um, they all tried to buy me when I was out on loan. And I ended up returning to Watford with a, you know, with a mission to try and get into the first team and play, you know. But Steve Harrison had a different agenda than I did. I ended up being sold to Brentford for 375 grand. Yeah, which was a decent chunk of money back then, wasn't it? A decent chunk yeah, of money for, now. But... For, for um, a young player, yeah, it was good. Yeah. You went on loan to a few different places, <laughs> didn't you, around I the did, country. Yeah. So as a young kid going off to, what, Carlisle? Um, yeah. Well, Port Vale, so Stoke yeah. area, isn't it? And yeah. then you went Swansea. into South Wales as well, yeah. So you, yeah. you kind of got to, to see a bit of the country too, you know, from, from where you <laughs> <Yeah>. were based. <laughs> Absolutely. When you live in London, you don't really know that there's anywhere else in the world, you know. You sort of don't go. It wasn't an M25 then either. It was, yeah, I, I went to Carlisle and sat on a train for five and a half hours and I got off and I was like, oh my goodness me. I spent a month there. I actually got to know uh, a good friend of mine, Ian Bishop, who was at the team at the time and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I was in the first team. I scored for them. Clive Middlemass was the manager. He was a really lovely fella. And then, let's say, from that one, then they got me out to, I think, the Port Vale, where John Rudge was the manager. Played with Robbie Earl, a good friend of mine now. I had so much experience of of going out to places, but, you know, it was me in a bag and my clothes in a bag. And, you know, I just wanted to do well. I just wanted to play football and, and, and score goals, you know. Yeah, what did your mum think of this? That all of a sudden, you know, her two boys that they've flown the coop really go to Watford, and then you're you're disappearing yeah. all the way up the country. What did she think? Yeah, well, she just let me get on with it. Really, she just said, you know, okay, where are you staying? Give me a phone when you get there. We never had mobiles, and um, I remember going to uh, Swansea and you know, meeting Terry Urif and Colin Hutchinson, and you know, they were legends in the game, really, and. Playing for Terry was a great experience. Playing for Swansea was, you know, I was in another country then. And then I played against Brentford. On the way back, we was on the train and Stevie Perriman came up and said, look, you know, we, we like the fact that you were marking Terry Evans from corners. You weren't frightened by it and you did really well. I think I scored. And would you fancy a loan with us? And I just said, where are you? <laughs> you know, where are you in the world? London, you know, great. London, brilliant. So I had a month there, scored for Brentford against Port Vale as well and you know really didn't want to go anywhere else on loan anymore because I'd done enough travelling what happened was Watford tried to sell me to Carlisle and I turned it down and I remember making a phone call to Steve Harrison who probably at that time thought that any young player shouldn't really disagree with what they had to say and I disagreed with me joining Carlisle I went to see Clive Middlemass out of respect but I didn't want to live in Carlisle at that time I was 18 years of age and I thought I was good enough to play for what I did tell Steve Harrison that which probably didn't go down that well I just felt that you know I'd been on loan to Swansea, Port Vale and Brentford and 
I didn't want to be sold to Carlisle and he, he actually really lambasted me for not going. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll try and prove you wrong. Anyway, literally games later, um, I did score uh, for the club, but I wasn't going to get in that first team. And literally Brentford came in after we played a reserve game one night and they, they called me and I got back and said, we're going to make the bid for you tomorrow. Will you come? And I, I said, well, yeah, let's do it because um, I can't see my future being at Watford, which was a real yeah. shame. Brentford, you had a good two, three seasons, I think, there, and you scored over 50-odd goals for them in that time. So you had a really good return on the games you played. Was that where, if you could really pinpoint where your career took off, would it be Brentford? Well, I went to Brentford, I think, in September, around that time, and they were bottom, or second from bottom, at the, of the third division, I think it was. And Stevie said to me, look, you know, we need your goals, we want you. It's a lot of pressure, but come in and, and be part of it. Um that was a sort of reset button of my football. I'd forgotten about my my injury. I'd forgotten about being a, an apprentice at Watford because you didn't get treated the same as you come through the ranks of being bought. And I had been bought by Brentford and I was a, suddenly a figure, which was great. And, and I've got to say, I joined a fabulous football club, a great bunch of lads who were there. After that, I scored 29 in that first season. Second season, I had a setback. I had a torn thigh muscle. And I, I think I managed something like 16 goals. And then I trained throughout the whole of that summer. The next summer, I didn't have any time off, didn't go away. I didn't. I couldn't afford it at the time, to be fair. And I went and, and trained. And literally, from the moment I played pre-season games to the first game of the season against Leighton Orient, I actually had a bet on myself to score a hat-trick in that game. This is pre-non-betting rules, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Can't condone it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Although betting for yourself to score a hat-trick, that's not a bad thing, right? Surely. Well, it was... I got, Poor odds, 25 to 1. Oh. Um, I scored. I did score a hat-trick, which was great. So I had a good bonus out of that. And then I scored a hat-trick in the cup on a Tuesday night against Barnet. Um, we won 4-3, I think it was, at Underhill. But yeah, literally going on to break the post-war record was something in my mind. And But my contract was up. So it was a really big decision to, to not talk about contracts. And I was focusing on, one, being the best goal scorer in the post-war era for the club. And two, getting promotion for the club, you know. Mm. Um, and we'd done both, which was amazing. But mm. they still don't know, that this day, I never got offered a contract at that club. And Martin Landers, the chairman, never offered me. I think they just wanted the money. And, you know, the fans were saying, you stay. And I, I had no contract offer. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was going to, you know, had something to turn down. There wasn't one there, you know. Which is very odd. I mean, that club, it was odd. I drive along the M4 a fair bit and I see the new stadium Brentford have built. I mean, that is a club yeah. that have really got their eyes set on you know, going to the Premier League. I've been back. I really enjoy going back, get invited, you know, back there. And now they're moving into the new era. It will give them a springboard for that new challenge. And they're not far away at the moment. You know, they're really not far away. And we had some special times there and I've got uh, Marcus Gowell is a good pal of mine who I speak to regularly now. And we had a great team a really great team of lads and the team spirit there was amazing really was then you move from one bit of team spirit to a, <laughs> a totally different sort of team spirit in the crazy gang <laughs> Wimbledon the crazy gang so you said you didn't have a contract offer from Brentford but how did the move to Wimbledon come about well, it, was a, it was a crazy three weeks the season ended we got promotion we were champions and then I'm out of contract I never had an agent really at the time. And a guy called Eric Hall, who worked with Wimbledon, he approached me and said, look, Tottenham are interested in you. We go down and speak to Tottenham. We've got Villa, we've got Norwich and Wimbledon. But I 
I took with Sam Haman the very first time. He, he actually, I met him at his house to talk about, you know, a contract. And, you know, everybody knows he's a character and he's got this philosophy of different things. And when I turned him down the first time, I said, well, I need to go and speak to Tottenham and I need to speak to a couple of other clubs. He said, no, you must sign this contract. And I said, oh, I can't today. And he said, well, you must. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm not going to sign today. Obviously, I'm going to speak to my family and, um, you know, think about it. And he locked me in his house, locked me in his front room. And he said, and he rang me from downstairs and he said, look out the window. And he was in his car. He said, I'm going out. If you haven't signed the contract, I'm not letting you out of the house. And I was like, well, you can't do this. This is sort of kidnapping. And he rang me back about 45 minutes later. Have you signed? <laughs> so I said, no, I'm certainly not signing it. And I'm, you've kidnapped me. I'm going to, you know, I'm not happy about it. I, there was bars on the window. He lived on Regent's Park, a beautiful house. And then there was a rattle in the door, and it, it was a woman came through the door. And she said, hi, hi, uh, who are you? And I said, well, my name, yeah, I'm Dean. Uh, and I said, who are you? She said, oh, I'm, um, I'm Sam's wife. And I was like, I, I need to go. I really need to get out of this house. <laughs> so she said, okay. I said, he's kidnapped me. <laughs> so she laughed. So literally, I got a call that evening from uh, Eric Hall and said, Sam wants to meet you again tomorrow to you know, renegotiate. And um, I said, I'm not going to his house. I'll meet him at the Royal Lancaster Hotel. And it was probably about two or three days later, I decided, I thought, you know, joining Wimbledon, it was right for me. You know, being part of the crazy gang would be a, a great experience. Um, and joined for, I think it was a million pounds there and then. So it was great. I joined the club and, and never looked back, really. Yeah, I thought you were going to say you agreed to meet him in the park because he couldn't lock you I, in. <laughs> honestly, I I couldn't believe it, um, but it was just what he was. He was the way he was, and I had that relationship with him for five years. I've hit his car before in the park. He's he's done things to me. He's let all my tires down in my car. He's done so many things to me. But we we knew what it was, and it was wasn't you know wasn't too bad. It was always something you could mend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That gives, I think, a good idea of what it must have been like at Wimbledon. But you played with some real, if I use the inverted commas word, characters in that yeah. club. Why is he left? Jonah returned. Fash was there, obviously. But do you know what? The core underlying, underpinning, if you like, of the club was they worked so hard training. And the myth of this sort of go-lucky team was an absolute myth. It really was. We really worked hard. And... We had a fantastic coach with Terry Burton, but we trained, a Premier League team trained on, on a park on Wimbledon Common. You know, it, it could never happen now. You know, there would be dogs walking across the pitch, all sorts of incredible things. We used to do our warm-up, an A3 run through the woods. That could never happen now. But it's what it was, and we worked extremely hard. But honestly, I've got to tell you, we, we had such a laugh nearly every day. If you were feeling down over a result, you know, it took you a couple of days to get in the right mood, but... There was always a great bunch of lads, even behind the first 11, the 16, 17, 18 players and the physio, Stevie Allen, they were always there to pick you up and, and enjoy you know, each other's company. And they still like it now. I'm in a group with them now and they're a great bunch. Is that what you think brought such, and it was success, I mean, they've won the FA Cup against Liverpool and then they had um, yeah. good, solid results in the, in the Premier League, you know, mid-tables, that sort of area. They were doing pretty well and you were in two FA Cup semi-finals. Was it the character of the club, you know, the ethic behind working for each other that made them so successful? Yeah, I mean, I think what it come down to was that at some point you either left because you weren't good enough or you were sold because you were really good enough. And every year Sam would sell a player to pay the wages or balance the books or whatever 
help himself or whatever it would be. But every year there would be one player go. So if a player goes to, say, a Tottenham or a Newcastle or wherever it may be, those clubs know what they're buying. They're buying a player who's got a big heart and prepared to sweat everything and give everything and come off that pitch absolutely knackered week in, week out because they play for Wimbledon because that's what you did. If you dropped, you were found out and you'd get found out in a dressing room as well. And it was a strong place to be. So any new player coming in had to really sustain quite a heavy pressure of not letting yourself down, not letting your players down, making sure your player you were marking at corners didn't score or get a free header. You know, there was a big pressure. But once you felt that you got to that point, you become part of it. And I'll never forget my first season. We went to Liverpool, Man United, um, Arsenal, and, and beat those teams away. It was no fear. You became, it was us against the world in most games because that was always, uh, you know, it's only Wimbledon. But honestly, the quality was there in the final third. We always had the quality in the final third. We really did. Yeah. Do you think that it was the reputation of, uh, you know, Vinnie Jones or somebody like mm. that grabbing players nuts when, they were, when the yeah. ref wasn't looking? Do you think it was the mm. reputation of that kind of antic that put teams really on the back foot against Wimbledon that gave you the edge? Or was it purely down to the fact you worked so, so hard? No, it was a combination of so many things. It was so many little things. What went on in the tunnel, the verbals in the tunnel, it went down to... Sam Haman loving the fact that Wimbledon were crazy. He didn't want Wimbledon to be a nice football team, a nice football club. Yeah. And he, he loved it. He absolutely loved the headlines. And so did some of the other players. There would always be a headline for something else rather than Dean Holes just scoring a goal. And it was, by the way, yeah, you know, Robbie scored a goal, Dean scored a goal, whatever it may be. But it was always another headline. We had to get used to that for a while because it almost superseded what Wimbledon were about, you know. After a decent period of time at Wimbledon, you then moved to Bolton. So this is a slightly different club in the football they played. It certainly was. I drove up there not knowing too much about the club, but all I knew was when I got on the M61, I saw the stadium, the new stadium, the Reebok, and I just thought, you know what, what a great chance for me to go and enjoy playing in a proper stadium as a home game not being a tenant anymore. And, you know, I looked around and I thought, I, I just fancied another challenge of something else, you know. But I soon found out that I was never going to score many goals with my head because we never crossed the ball. And I remember a conversation I had with Colin Todd was probably about six weeks into being there. I said, I, I, I'm, I'm baffled why you signed me. I'm a goal scorer and I score goals. I'm really good in the air. Um, but we would get to a crossing position and then we'd turn back. We'd turn back, you'd make a run. And I found it really, really difficult. During the day, I'd carry my wash bag around, my boots around with me. And they were like, why are you doing that? I said, well, don't they go missing here? You know, because that's what happened at Wimbledon, you know. <laughs> um, you put your wash bag down, it'd go, someone would have it somewhere else, you know, they'd hide it. And you know, those sort of things <laughs> were really different. And then I got a hernia and I had my cartilage done as well in that same season. And watching the team play and we got relegated, it was a real tough one because I felt like I didn't have any part in it. And it was a real, a real, real strain understanding the system. I only scored one goal that year and it came off the crossbar with my head, you know? Well, that's extra so, finesse, isn't it, if it comes off the crossbar? Well, it came back off the crossbar against Blackburn and I scored the rebound and, and I went in and said, oh, look, I can, I can score a goal, you know, in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's like, what are you, what's he going on about? You know, and I'm like, cross the bloody ball, you know, but yeah. it didn't, you know. So I was really, when Toddy got 
sacked, I was pretty much ready to go in terms of, you know, I, I gave everything, but I just it became very frustrating. But it soon changed, soon massively changed. It was like a breath of fresh air that someone came in. And um, I remember a conversation I had with Sam Allardyce and said, look, I'm really good at goal scoring and you know I'm frustrated but you know it's not all everyone else's fault it's I'm part of that but you need to know my strengths not my weaknesses you know he said right give me three weeks he went out and got Nicky Summerby and Alan Johnson from Sunderland and the next cup game I scored a hat-trick of headers which was sort of like me trying to prove a point to my conversations you know so I was delighted that Sam came in and we had a massive work ethic it changed dramatically in terms of day-to-day stuff the the physiotherapy side of things changed it was great to be part of and I got on so well with him going into an office thinking I'm going to come out of here and never not knowing where I'm going to go next was you know I stayed five years which was great and I loved it Sam Big Sam Sam Allardyce has this reputation of a of a bit more of a a direct basic footballing manager right the kind of Mm. simple knock it up to the big man yeah but when you see him set teams up nowadays, mm. every club he's been to, mm. he's had success, right? Mm. So it can't yeah. just be a simple whack it up to the big man and let him smack it in the net. There's got to be other nah, stuff going on there. So absolutely this, Is it that he doesn't get the props he perhaps deserves then? If Sam Allardyce had been born in Italy, it might be different. But he was born in Dudley. And um, he works with his strengths and works on the weaknesses as well. But you don't sign Yuri Jokai if trying to smash the ball up to him, do you? You know, I changed my game. I played as a one uh, quite a bit up front. So I used to play an off of somebody and then I changed my game under Sam um, where I played more back to goal quite a bit more where you'd hold the ball up late into midfield, into the three in midfield, JJ, Kocha, uh, Yuri, Per France and whoever, Paul Warhurst, whoever it may be. And then you get it wide and then get it in the box. So the, the, the fundamentals are still there. You know, if you look at Liverpool now, they've got the best range of passing in the Premier League but they're not all short passes are they no. they're 25 30 yard passes you know Man United had the best goalkeeper Bartes with a left foot who could ping the ball 60 yards now that's that's a long ball but is it recognised like that because of the badge on the shirt you know I'd say I'd say yes because they were very direct and rightly so they had so much pace when you played against the Liverpools as well they were quick so you wanted to get from front to back quick not through channels and passing in spaces, but he got labelled and uh, it stayed with him for quite a while. But he certainly knows how to win football matches and get the best out of players. Yeah, well, counter-attack is possibly one of the most direct forms of football you can play. Yeah, so, you know, (laughs) it's an unfair label. I think there's a sell-by date on certain managers who have that. You know, Sam had an underpinning of getting results and that's not a bad thing to have, is it? No, well, not that long ago, Leicester City won the Premier League and they weren't the most um, on-the-floor passing team. They would get it up to Vardy as quick as you can, spring the counter, and, and they were so successful in that one year. And everybody knew what they were going to do, but no one could stop them. Absolutely. If it works, you know, and it's not broken, why try and change it? So, looking at your career then... At the end of your Bolton time, is it fair to say that that's when your career started to probably wind down? It's definitely fair to say because my children were in London and I'd spent two years on planes, trains and automobiles <laughs> twice a week going backwards and forwards from Bolton and I, quite frankly, I just felt that I needed to go back and see my children because I was seeing them two nights a week and then leaving at four o'clock in the morning to drive to Bolton, which is a five-hour journey and getting out of the car tired out and then, you know, not doing myself justice enough. But the circumstances what played a part in that, you know. Absolutely. So it was the right time for you. 
Yeah, I felt so. I, I didn't want to be. I was. It wasn't rotated. I was sub, and if you're sub and you get on, and then you play the next game, great. We had an abundance of very good players, goal scorers as well. So I thought to myself, well. If I can't give Bolton everything, then I'm going to be letting them down and I don't want to let them down. I just said to Sam, look, get me a move where I can see my kids every night of the week and take them to school now and again, you know? And, and that meant more to me than, than the money and anything else. So I've had 15 years of pretty good stuff, you know? Professional footballers get to enjoy certain certain things, don't they? <laughs> you know, yeah. There's always a lot of attention that professional footballers get. Do you look back at your footballing career and think, yeah, I had a, I had a good time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I'm putting it as delicately as I can. I had, a, I had a great time. I had a tough time as well in certain stages. I didn't realise when I was 17 laying on the bed when you've got 82 stitches in your knee, I didn't think at that time when I was told I wouldn't play football again that by the surgeon I think I would have in front of me what I had. And I tried to respect it as much as I could and tried to enjoy it as much as I could and but also give it everything I could and I think I did. Do you think looking back, it's almost a lot easier looking back I think, than living in the moment, yeah. but do you yeah. look back at some of those times in despair at the things you got up to or do you look back and think, well, you know, it was right at the time? Not despair. There's, there's a few regrets in there in terms of, listen, we never had a crystal ball, did we? I could have done things a little bit differently then, but... I never went into anything with any intention of doing anything untoward or such, but it was always what what it was was in front of you at the time, you know? Yeah. And it's easy as a young lad, when you suddenly have opportunities, should you put them thrust into your face? It's hard yeah, to start without, turning it down, isn't it? Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and then you become yeah, that vulnerable person. But yeah, again, there are times when you're at Wimbledon, when you it was us against the world and you thought you were invincible, which was a little bit naive. I never got involved in the headlines in terms of getting involved in any altercations and stuff like that. So I was always the one who wanted to be behind that and just tap the ball in the net, you know. When your career wound down then and, and you had to almost hang up the boots, can you remember what that, that decision was like? Well, the funny thing was, I still play fetch, right? So I haven't retired. <laughs> but, 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 however, I went into non-league football and I went out to Hong Kong to play in the sevens and I loved it. I never knew there was a life after football in terms of tournaments. You know, Hong Kong sevens, Singapore, I played in Phuket, I opened a children's home in Phuket for a German side. I loved it. And it was a summer sort of tournaments. But leaving sort of the pro game, I took it. That I thought, well, there's a transition here. I listened to older players and there's a transition here and how am I going to deal with it? Unfortunately hmm. um, for me, it, it all came together and it's quite symbolic of a professional footballer, to be fair, and the stats are there to support that, that a lot of footballers get divorced after their careers. And I was going through a divorce at the same time. And it was real sort of, what's my next step? And I got offered a chance to go into management with Redbridge, a local team, a non-league side. And I absolutely loved it. And then I decided to go on my coaching badges and went from Redbridge, where we had a fantastic season. This was what you call a board meeting. Is the chairman having a cigarette in the porter cabin with a leaking porter cabin and handing over sort of 20 quid for new socks, what we needed for the kit. But we had a really successful season and I got offered a job at Newport. So I never had really time to reflect on how that happened, what just went on in the last 15 years of my life, because I was really focused on doing well at management. And Went to Newport and um, ended up being the most successful team in 2010 in Europe with 103 points, you know. So I built something 
And I was also doing my coaching badges with the Welsh FA at the time. And I was absolutely loving being the manager and building a team and a group and the sort of never say die attitude of what we had there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And your career as a manager, you've won Manager of the Month awards and promotion. Is it tough for you playing the level of football that you played, managing players that just are not as capable as you are or were, or probably (laughs) actually probably still are, you know, you probably, you still have the the ability, probably not as quick as you were, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) You never lose what you never had. And that's close. No, I play in a great bunch of lads, fellas now and the vets, and we've won the league in the cup this year, and we won it last year as well. So we've got we've got a great bunch. But no, the the best thing about the non-league world, and and I loved it, was improving players and getting them to buy into what what might give them a snippet of a historic moment. And we did that at Newport, where we won the league in I think it was March the fourteenth in two thousand and ten, and I said to them. We can't just accept being champions. I want to be historic champions of the division. We're a great team. And I've got Gary Warren. I've got Danny Rose, Sam Foley, Craig Reed, Charlie Henry, Paul Bignott, and Scotty Rogers. It's a great, great nucleus of a, of a, of a squad. And I said, I want you to become history. And I said, so we're not going to rest until we get to the end of the season. And I want 100 points. I said, no one has ever done it in that division. And how good would it be that no one probably will do it for a long, long time? And to be fair to them, they bought into the philosophy. They didn't rest. We enjoyed the winning. And we last game of the season, we won and we won 103 points. And as I say, achieving manager of the year and all this stuff was the accolade of the team, really. They, they bought into what we wanted and the fans are amazing. We had five and a half thousand there for pretty much every home game. And, uh, sure the chairman and the board liked it as well. Non-league football is, the fans have got such a close link to the club, or yeah. they think they do. You know, they are such yeah. hugely involved things in the club. And yeah. they're they're probably earning similar amounts of money to the players, if not more, in some cases, if you're talking Maybe, about a yeah. semi-pro player. So yeah. is that part of the attraction of non-league football for you as a manager, that you have that, there is such a, a close bond between the fans and the players, or is it purely that you can focus in on making players better? Twofold, really. You've got to manage up and you've got to manage down. The players, you've got to be their friend. They're going to let you down. Players will let you down no no matter what. And the ones who don't let you down are the ones who buy into the behaviour and the professionalism. I ban drinking in the bar for our home games for our players. I don't want a drinking culture. And that, to say to a non-league player, is quite difficult because they like a beer after the game. I think it's all about team spirit. Mm. Well, they can have a beer when they get home or stop off around the pub and I don't know about it. But we had a code of conduct. And for me, it was always about the, the next game, not the one you're playing in and, you know, being sharp and being ready for it. And if it didn't, they got left out. And I said to them, I'm not, it's not emotional. I'll do what I've got to do to make sure we're all winners. And they loved it. They really bought into it. But when you're managing with one chairman, it's brilliant. When you're managing with six on the board, we've all got six opinions, that's a difficult time. And you've got people who don't really have a football mentality or education who are making decisions, and that's a tough one. But they put their money in, and that gives them the authority to do it. And I think a lot of clubs would benefit by some of the board members going on a course to understand what it takes to be in the football education system, you know? For anybody who doesn't know what the NLFA is, what is it, how did it come about, and what's your involvement? I'm the founder, 
and the owner, it came about because two of my players were injured at Redbridge and they came to see me and they said, Gaffer, we're not getting paid. We're injured and we don't get paid when we're injured. And I said, really? And so they, to my surprise, went to see Jimmy Chapman, who's a great fella. And he said to me, well, I'm not paying them. They're injured. <laughs> so he said, so he went, here's your budget and that's your budget. So I thought, what can I do to help? I went to see Gordon Taylor at the PFA. Obviously, I was chairman of the PFA for three years. So he said to me, well, the only way you're going to do it is if you form an association. And so I formed the Non-League Footballers Association, made it free of charge. But I found a, an insurance policy company who could help the players when they're injured to cover their wages. Most of the players in the Ryman North were on 150 to £200 a week. And that covers it if they apply for the policy. So that was the root and the basis of me starting the NLFA up. And we're actually relaunching it with some new partners to help players of non-league. And it's a huge nut to crack. But I know we've helped a lot of players already. We're not backed by anybody. It's been my own invention because I felt I could help. And we're slowly and gradually going along, ticking the boxes for partners. Lots of players need the same things what uh, professionals need. And that's what we hope to do for them. But uh, I know that we've helped players, and that's been a bonus and a, and a nice thing for me to do. I've got some sort of quick fireish questions to, to okay. sort of finish this off, really, I suppose. Who's the best player that you've ever played with in your professional career? John Barnes for a small amount of time, and in Yuri Djokaev. They're two very big names, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they're great, great players. Wow. What made them so? So good to play. Barnsley on the was. I was an apprentice at, at Watford and watched Barnsley every day and tried to take some of what he'd done into my game. And he was my hero. And I still go on things with him now, and he thinks I'm his mate. I'm. He's my hero, and I keep to tell him no one could get the ball off him. And it was just he was skillful. He was quick. You know, his left foot was a wand. He was just brilliant. And and Yuri was a gentleman. What a great player. You made a run and the ball was in front of you. And that was something which I'd been craving for quite a while when I was at Bolton. And, you know, you'd make a run and all of a sudden the ball's there. You know, you haven't got to check your feet. You haven't got to change stance. You just did it. It was great. I loved, really enjoyed playing with Yuri. And as I say, training with him as well was brilliant. Well, you, you, you probably can guess the next question then, and this is a, a tough one, maybe. <laughs> Who's the worst player you've ever played with? <laughs> oh, my goodness me. Well, I, I don't know about played with. I had a player turn up for me as a manager, and I won't say what club it was, but his agent said to me, he was from Spain and he was in League Two, and he said he is the next Spanish great. And um, I turned up and literally he could have been a waiter. And... <laughs> I think I advised him to take up another job uh, after the game because <laughs> I, I said, I, I don't think football's made out for you. I won't say it was, but it was very funny at the time. My assistant said to me, where did you get him from? <laughs> I said, I'll never trust that agent again, you know? Uh, so it reminds me of that. There was a story leaked many, many years ago about Liverpool signing this wonder striker and it turned out it was from Hardchester United, which was, I think, the Daily Mirror football. You know, yeah, that's old, right, yeah. yeah it was Roy the Romans or whatever. It was Roy a complete, Romans, yeah. yeah, fictitious character that Liverpool was talking about signing. Ridiculous. Um, right, so you've had quite a few highs in your career, both as a player and as a manager. What would you regard as your, your greatest high? Uh, scoring for England being selected for England with Terry Venables and and then scoring against Ireland was probably 
the most proudest moment you can get. I always think and reflect about that hospital bed I was laying in with plaster on my leg and the stitches in my knee that you can get from there to there. You know, I was, I've got a golden boot for Brentford in the division, 38 goals. And then I was in the running for Premier League top goal scorer in 93, I think it was. I think it was only one or two behind. I think it was right who won it in the end. Well, Sheringham, Teddy Sheringham, maybe. But playing football is always the biggest high of all. With a job you love, you, you don't work anymore, do you? What's your career low then? If you've got one moment you can think, oh, do you know what? That's the worst. It was probably, I'd say, when I tore my whole knee at 17, because I spent a whole year, I had three operations over the year. And as I say, it was a real, when I was told by a surgeon I'd never play football, that he would get back, it would get me back to being able to walk properly. And at 17, you're not ready for that conversation when you're an apprentice. So, I think that was the real low, 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 low point of um, my life, if you like. I've been through tough times with separation of my parents and, and things like that. But when you knee, I mean, I've got a train track on my knee of, of, of stitches and it's a, it's a tough thing. That is, That was really the lowest point. I've, all the other stuff I've had, which to do with either media or whatever, or missing chances and stuff like that, is all part of my life, mm. um, which, which generated from being... You know, uh, a footballer but when you're told it was going to be taken away from you before it's probably my biggest achievement as well was coming back from it you know I remember crying my eyes out and then Graham Taylor coming in probably an hour later and giving me a two year contract and said I believe in you proved me right well, that's cool isn't it it's nice so to have that pretty, that was a special moment you know what are your family what did your your mum and your your brother and your sister and your kids all think of your your career they love it they I'm sure they're very proud. Me and my brother, you know, we've always been rivals, but we're brothers and we, we get on, we speak, you know, frequently. And we've had different careers in terms of limelights and headlines and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, my boys love it. I've got two boys, Bradley, 28, Jordan, 24. And I've got a little girl now, Sophia Lilly, who's four, nearly five. She doesn't know me as a footballer. She knows me as being really funny. <laughs> well, someone's got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I say to her every day, make me proud. And she does. And um, they all do. But my boys are brilliant. They've, they've been with me all the way. They used to come training. They come on the pitch with me. Um, yeah, they've had a great life experience in terms of that. And But they've, you know, they, they were brought up on, on good foundations of yes, please, and no, thank you, you know, and work yeah. hard. Yeah, it's going to be nice to see when your daughter gets old enough to see the photos and watch the videos. Yeah. When you sit her down for you know ten hours at a time to watch Dean Holdsworth's greatest goals. <laughs> you know? well, exactly. Yeah, she's got an hour to spare. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a best goal? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I just enjoy scoring goals. I've got scored a header against Liverpool at home uh, for Wimbledon against James, who I was an apprentice with. That was one of my best headers I've ever scored. That was off a Neil Hardy's cross. It was a great. For me, one of the best headers I've done. I didn't score many outside the box. One against Ipswich was a was a decent one. I just really enjoyed scoring goals. Really, you know, getting myself in the right position. Whether it was a tapping, I've nicked a few on the line, things like that. You know, yeah. but um, it was always I didn't care. <laughs> well, it was. I just wanted to see my name next day on the paper. You know, yeah. so um, scoring goals is just the best. Loved it. What's the next chapter? I work now in the Middle East quite a bit with a shake. And a ruler, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm almost like a consultant to a lot of to a lot of people. Now I use what I have, and I'm I try and be as honest, and I never let people down if I can. Mm-hmm. I've gone into things, and people have let me down after football, 
and it hurts. So I try and keep myself as happy as I possibly can and involve myself with the nicest people I can. I enjoy my life as, as much as I can and you know, I enjoy having the banter with everybody and but there's a seriousness to it obviously. But um, I work hard but I still love going out and taking the Mickey out of my mates and uh playing golf and whatever with them. I try and stay out of the limelight as much as I can, to be honest with you. I really do. So no urge to go back into a dugout then? I'd love to, but I don't think it'll happen. And I don't think I can turn myself away from the other stuff I do, which is involved traveling quite a bit in, mm. in, say, in the Middle East. You know, I've had that day. But I do go, when I go to games, I'm itching to sort of talk to the manager, see what his thoughts are, his philosophies, and how he's structuring his thoughts of the games and stuff like that. I like talking to managers and but I'm never a threat to anyone because I don't want a job, which is quite nice. Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for coming on this podcast. Oh, you're more than welcome and I hope it sounds okay. <laughs> so do I. No, no, it will It's do. available for bedtime stories, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Anyone who suffers from insomnia, this is the one yeah, for exactly. you. Yeah, exactly. This is it. No. This is <laughs> My thanks to Dean Holdsworth. What incredible stories from his life. And I think that story from Sam Hamam and Wimbledon is going to stay in my mind for quite some time. Now, if you want to find Dean on social media, go to Dean underscore Holdsworth underscore 1968 on Instagram or just search his name on any well-known search engine. And if you want to find out about the Non-League Footballers Association, go to the NLFA.com. I'm Bryn Lucas. You've been listening to It's All About Me. If you liked it, subscribe and listen to other episodes. If you didn't, well, keep it under your hat. Thank you.